and welcome to Taxing Matters, your one-stop audio shop for all things tax, brought to you by RPC. My name is Alice Kemp and I will be your guide as we explore the sometimes hostile and ever-changing landscape that is the world of tax law and tax disputes. Taxing Matters brings you a fortnightly roadmap to guide you and your business through this labyrinth. In case any of you miss any crucial information, or just want some bedtime reading, there is a full transcript of this and indeed every episode of Taxing Matters on our website at www.rpc.co.uk forward slash taxing matters. Today we are joined by Bloomberg finance reporter Donald Griffin. Donald reports on a range of financial markets and financial crime issues and for the past 18 months has been following the development of the Cumex scandal across Europe and beyond. Donald, welcome to Taxing Matters. Hey Alice, good morning. So what exactly is Cumex? Okay, so what is Cumex? Depending on who you talk to, Cumex was either a sort of like, again, this clever exploitation of a loophole in German law or a sort of a criminal exploitation of weakness in dividend taxing laws across Europe. People pay taxes on dividends across the world, you know, every time they get paid. There's nothing unusual about that. They're called withholding taxes. Every jurisdiction more or less imposes them. Some shareholders are entitled to refunds on those taxes, depending on where they're based in the world. Historically, um, owners of dividends, companies, whether it's banks or hedge funds or asset managers, when they received dividends and when they pay taxes on those dividends, they would often seek ways of reducing that tax burden, such as lending out their stocks around the time of the dividend and then getting them back a week later. Banks in the city, uh, in London, and in the States for a long time as well, for years, um, years and years and years, have engaged in a trading strategy that enables them and other investors to reduce the amount of withholding tax that they pay on dividends. And the way that that traditionally worked, and this was a widespread, quite well-known strategy, the way that that worked is that, let's say you have a party in jurisdiction A and a party in jurisdiction B. The party in jurisdiction A is about to receive a dividend um, from some stocks that they hold. And let's say that they are going to pay a 25% tax on the dividends that they are about to receive. They don't fancy paying 25% tax on that. So they get in touch with party B, who is in another jurisdiction where he will only face a, let's say, a 10% tax or a 5% tax. Sometimes in the past, no tax at all. So party A says, hey, any chance I can lend you my shares for a week or so, two weeks, you don't pay any of the tax or you pay your 5% tax or whatever it is. Um, and then when the dividend date is over, you pay me back my stocks and we split the tax savings. So ultimately, the person who was supposed to be paying 25% tax that gets reduced to whatever it might be, and um, you know, fifteen percent or ten percent, and and so that has been in play for for years. Um, and again, that was a widespread practice, and um, that took place between banks, pension funds, asset managers. Took place all over Europe, all over the world. Comex was a way of exploiting that. So multiple parties traded shares rapidly around the time that the dividend got paid thus kind of making it harder to tell who exactly owned the shares at the time that the dividends got paid. 
And as a result, multiple parties got in touch with exchequers around Europe and said, hey there, I'm entitled to a tax refund on these taxes that I paid on these dividends on these shares that I held. Can you please send me a check for, you know, a million quid or whatever? And that happened again and again and again. So even though the taxes only got paid once, multiple reclaim requests were made and were granted. I mean, it's like you, you pay tax on your, on your car, right? Um, it's, um, and maybe um, there's a way of making a request for some kind of a tax refund at the end of the year. And then I pop up and I say, hi, you know, I'm going to make the same request for that. And we both receive a tax rebate for it because it's unclear who actually owns the car at the time. So in the end, the result of all of this is exchequers across Europe paying out tax refunds often to parties who never held those dividends at that time. So what volume of loss are we talking about here? So the the multiple of loss that we're talking about, German lawmakers say that Comex has cost German taxpayers about 10 billion euros. The Germans sort of realized what was going on and, 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 and changed their laws around 2012. So it stopped then. But up until 2012, they claimed that they, they took a 10 billion euro hit. So that's 10 billion euros that German tax authorities paid out to parties who weren't entitled, they say, to receive it. So the Germans say that's that's 10 billion euros that could have been spent on, you know, teachers, healthcare, cops, whatever, and and that instead went to to Comex participants. The Danes, who were also part of this, say that they paid out about two billion, maybe even a bit more, I think, but the Danes definitely say about two billion. And for the Danes, that amounts to, I think, about 1% of their GDP, huge amount of money. Similar trading schemes took place in Austria and the Netherlands, Belgium, France. The exact sum, exactly how much was paid out, I'm not sure if we will ever know. I mean, you're talking about massive volumes of trades across jurisdictions from the early 2000s, mid-2000s, up until about 2012, 13, around that time. So I don't think we'll ever get a full sense of just how much money was was paid out to COMEX participants, but it is in the tens of billions, most likely, you know, if you, if you tot it all up across Europe, the Germans alone say it's about 10 billion there. So it's, the number is likely astronomical, yeah. So how did you come to be involved in this investigation and uh, tracing the participants around the world? Um, slightly long story. I'll, I'll be as, as succinct as I can, I promise. Um, okay, so, so t- two things kind of dovetailed. Comex investigations, which I suspect was going to be your next question, um, so the sort of investigations into Comex, especially in Germany, but also in Denmark, were beginning to kind of ramp up last year. And we can get to that in a second. But so while these COMEX investigations were beginning to kick off in continental Europe, but I guess it goes back to what I said about COMEX being the biggest tax scandal that you've, you've never heard of, you know, in that some of the biggest scandals that have taken place in, in financial services over the last decade in the wake of the financial crisis, whether it's, you know, rigging up LIBOR, um, rigging up FX markets, things like that, all of the various cases that kind of came out of the financial crisis. At this stage, they are 
quite well known if you move in financial markets the LIBOR rigging FX rigging things like that everyone knows what they are and, and and they were really well reported at the time and extensively investigated whereas Cumex, which was going on at the exact same time as the rigging of these markets and um, Cumex, which was taking place across London and across Europe when you bring it up, it can often be met with kind of blank looks, um, you know, not not just from 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 my my long suffering colleagues and editors who have to hear from me about this all the time, but but also from you know from from lawyers, from accountants, from people who work at banks. It doesn't really seem to have sunk in just how extensive this was and just how widespread it was and the scale of it, the scope of it, just how impactful it was on German and Danish and Belgium and Austrian sort of taxpayers, just how massive it was. And I don't think that's ever really sunk in. And to prove that point, I had never really heard of it until again, sort of middle of last year or so, maybe early last year, you know, I'd see the odd headline about it. My colleague, Karen Matusik, in Frankfurt, who's our, our legal reporter, she covers the German courts, had been, you know, sort of slogging it out day out and d- d- reporting on all of these kind of stories that were just meandering their way through the courts about um, the, the early sort of COMEX investigations. And I don't think we ever paid a huge amount of attention to it here in London. And then um, myself and another colleague of mine in London, we were writing a story about this trading desk um, at Barclays that had been making hundreds of millions of pounds every year from various forms of kind of dividend tax arbitrage schemes. And, and, and it had figured out a way of making all of this money from kind of somehow managing to sort of arbitrage different dividend tax rates across Europe. Um, and it was, uh, you know, very few people had heard of this desk, both inside and outside of Barclays. And the more people I spoke to about that desk, and I should state that, I mean, there was no suggestion that anything the desk was doing was illegal or anything like that. They weren't doing Comex or anything like that. But everyone I spoke to when I was trying to figure out what this desk was doing and, and, and why it was a big deal at all, Comex kept coming up in these interviews, you know, a lot of the, again, the analysts or, 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 or again, her lawyers or whoever, whoever I would talk to, former traders, former bankers, and um, they kept telling me to look at Comex, you know, and that was the first time that I really started to jump into it. And I think by the end of the year, after I'd kind of done this big Barclays story and, and began to fully sort of get a sense of, of what dividend arbitrage trading schemes were, um, that happened to dovetail with the first sort of landmark Comex trial, which began in in Bonn, in Germany, late last year. Um, and that trial had been brought by, I think, by Cologne prosecutors against two former Comex traders, um, one guy called Martin Shields, another guy called Nick Diablo, both of whom were former um, Unicredit traders. Um, and they went on to set up a hedge fund and stuff like that. And they had both cooperated with prosecutors and outlined the workings of the industry over a few sort of epic days in, in court late last year. And just 
gave all of these kind of statements um, to the court, provided hours of testimony about what banks were involved, what interdata brokers were involved, what hedge funds were involved, the traders themselves, you know, that they named the banks, they named the dealers, they named the hedge funds, they kind of named everyone who they said they had ever worked with in Cumberland. And that trial continued until earlier this year and they they had pled guilty and then they were found guilty. And I think it was that coming together of those two things, which is me sort of jumping into dividend arbitrage for the first time through that Barclay story, but also the beginning of this Cumex trial late last year and just the way that that trial sort of lifted the lid on this whole industry, that just drew me in, you know, um, it's and it, it's been hard to hard to let it go ever since. Um, and most reporters who spend any real time digging around it, you do find yourself kind of hooked if you're in any way passionate about about what you do. As as stories go, it's 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 kind of got it all. And I say that without being kind of without being flippant about the the, the massive amounts of, of of taxpayers' money that's at stake here. It's got. A massive scale. If you're talking about what makes a really important, really good, really compelling story, it's got massive scale. So billions and billions and billions of euros. It's got all more or less of the world's biggest banks. These traders, when they turned up in court, they named everyone from Barclays, Bank of America, ICAP, and you know they named hedge funds. They named the traders themselves. They named. I mean, they just outlined how the whole thing worked. You know, and then you've got these extraordinary characters who got into Comex as kind of, you know, mid-level traders in the city and within a couple of years generated extraordinary wealth for themselves. You know, extraordinary wealth, the kind of wealth that traders who come in and out of the city every day, they can, they can only dream of making these kinds of fortunes. Martin Shields, one of the, the, one of the two traders, I think he said he had made just from his time in a hedge fund I think he said he made something like 13 million, uh, you know, and, and that's a figure that, you know, when I, when I put that figure to people, a lot of people were like, that's, he's, he's lowballing that, you know, <laughs> um, it could, could have been a lot more. I don't want to question uh, whether or not Mr. Shields is telling the truth, but um, yeah, there's for sure the amounts of money that were generated by, again, traders who had, you know, had never risen to really high levels within the, the, the banks that they worked for until Comex came along and they, they were able to generate massive, massive fortunes for themselves. You've mentioned a trial in Germany. What's happening to kind of redress this? What are the actions the European authorities taking? So in Germany, um, what they've done is they've been investigating this for years. Um, prosecutors in Cologne and Frankfurt, um, and I think perhaps in some other jurisdictions within Germany, um, they have been investigating this for years now. And they have, I mean, so many suspects who they, they, they seem to be investigating. And their approach to this is, is very interesting. They have convinced a number of former Comex traders to cooperate with them. And they've managed to get traders from kind of across the industry. There is, again, these um, Martin Shields, Nick Diablo. They were former Unicredit traders who went out and set up their own hedge fund. 
they've got traders, I think, from Macquarie to talk. Um, there's a number of other uh, traders who used to work at um, some of the hedge funds that were involved in Comex who have also been kind of cooperating and providing um, testimony. So that has kind of resulted in a number of prosecutions so far. You've had a couple of court cases. I think one court case has already concluded. That was the one that ended earlier this year, the kind of landmark trial. You've got another court case that's just after really kicking off, again, involving the same uni credit traders and, and another investment bank, uh, Warburg. Exactly where the Germans go beyond that, I think that's that's one of the big questions about this. And also perhaps what has a lot of people very spooked in the city, I think, because perhaps after this trial that's going on at the moment, the Germans could say, okay, look, you know, we've, we've done a lot here. You know, we've gotten a couple of convictions. Let's just kind of pack up and move on. Or they could decide to just keep on going and keep on going through all of the, the testimony that they've collected over the summer, for example. Um, I think we had perhaps thought that maybe things would start to wind down after that first trial concluded in March or so. And then over the summer, I think in July, the owner of a hedge fund that had been allegedly very active in Comex, the hedge fund was called Duet, the owner of that fund, interesting guy called Henry Gabe, was arrested in an airport in the south of France. I think he was on his way back to London. Um, he was arrested and sort of you know, packed off to a court in Aix-en-Provence where he was extradited to Germany. That seems to have been a real shot across the bows as well for, for the industry. I, th- I, I think it was one of the first times that the Germans had used extradition in that way. Mr. Gabe has denied any involvement here. So Mr. Gabe was arrested in, in south of France, extradited to Germany, and then released, I think, that day, um, I presume pending further investigation, and, and, and we'll see where that one goes, and Mr. Gabe denies all, all wrongdoing, and, and that will take its course. But I think that was a real shot across the bows, like I said, that the Germans, they weren't finished yet, let's say, and that there is definitely more to come here. Again, exactly how far they want to go. I mean, do they want to keep on going after individuals the way that they've been doing so far? Do they want to go after the institutions themselves? Is that going to happen? These are all just questions, I suppose, that we ask ourselves. I think sometimes us journalists, we can be quite cynical about this stuff. Sometimes, you know, investigations can sound like they're going to be really far reaching and and then they all wind up with, you know, a couple of fines and, and the whole thing goes away. One of the things that makes it so compelling, though, and that we don't we don't know how far they're going to go like in in terms of the things that we've heard so far the things that have popped up in again in testimony some really senior people in finance have been named um throughout this i mean it brought in some of the biggest most sophisticated investment banks in the world again at a time austerity was kind of spreading across europe you had this kind of scheme that was going on that was um you know denying taxpayers all this money we've written stories about whether it's Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, Deutsche Bank, um, Macquarie, Unicredit. I mean, these really big, really important financial institutions. It will be really interesting to see what the Germans decide to do on that front. Again, will they continue to just pursue individuals or will this ever amount to some kind of case against these institutions themselves who knows who knows i'm i'm, I'm not making a claim one way or another you know
And what about um, jurisdictions other than Germany? What are they doing in terms of enforcing or tracking down these funds? So the Danes will probably be the most active after the Germans so far. Uh, and what's very interesting about the Danes is that their interest in this, it really just extends to one individual hedge fund. I'm sure there are more players involved, but the main case that it has taken so far involves one hedge fund, which is called Solo Capital Partners. And everything that the Danes have done has kind of sprung from that one case. And they claim that through what they call like, you know, quite an audacious scam, the Danes say that they paid out something like $2 billion or so in tax rebates that should never have been paid out. And again, given the size of the Danish economy compared to the German economy, $2 billion for the Danes amounts to, I mean, a, a massive, massive chunk of their economy. It's about 1% of their GDP, you know. So it's a huge sum of money for them. And again, the, the bulk of this would have been paid out, they say, in the years immediately after the financial crisis when the Danes, like everyone else, were, I presume were imposed and kind of austerity and cuts and spending and stuff like that. Um, and this all went to solo capital partners, this hedge fund, and related parties. Um, the main beneficiary of all of this, the Danes claim, was a trader called Sanjay Shah, who had worked in the city, worked for Rabobank, worked for ING, set up his own fund called Solo Capital Partners. The reason he called it Solo Capital, he told us recently, is that he he wanted all the money himself, um, hence, <laughs> hence Solo. Um, so we interviewed Sanjay. Sanjay is in Dubai these days. Um, he told us that you know he's facing a number of, of Danish related investigations. He has been told by his lawyers that if he leaves Dubai, there's a pretty good chance he'd be arrested and um, that there are criminal investigations into what Sanjay is alleged to have done and what Solo Capital is alleged to have done. Sanjay Shah, when we interviewed him and we did a TV interview with him as well, so so your listeners can kind of check that out also. Shah claims he did nothing wrong. He claims that there was a, a loophole um, that him and Solo, that they, they legally exploited to the tune of two billion quid. When we asked him whether or not it was ethical to have done so giving him the benefit of the doubt for a second let's say it was legal let's say it was a loophole should you have done it like was this f given the the sums i mean his his response was bankers don't have morals hedge funds don't have morals we made the money legally i mean um that was sanjay's response um, and i mean he he spoke to us at length and repeated again and again that he's done nothing wrong so that's the Danes. So you've got the Germans, you've got the Danes. There are other jurisdictions that have an interest here. Exactly what they're going to do, obviously, we don't know. But those jurisdictions, I'd say, include Belgium, Austria, Luxembourg, the Netherlands, and France, I think. There are, there are other jurisdictions were involved here as well, but they're the ones that we pick up on the most. How far those countries want to go, who knows? Um, will they be as aggressive as um, as the Germans have been, as the Danes have been? It's hard to tell, you know. Um, obviously, we'll, we'll, we'll just have to wait and see. And then in the UK, that's one of the, the, the ironies of this. 
so much of Comex took place in London by banks and by hedge funds that were that were all based in London or had massive operations in London. But Comex never involved British stocks. It never involved British taxes, British dividends. So the British, as a result, were never impacted really by, by Comex. No fraud took place on British stocks, on the British taxpayer. So the HMRC might be entitled to say, like, you know, it's none of our business. I'm not, not saying they've said that, but um, it, it is an interesting one that so much of this was kind of led from London, but yet because it didn't directly impact British taxpayers, exactly where British tax authorities get involved here isn't clear. However, we did report, my colleagues reported, um, I think just last month, that the FCA is currently investigating, I think, is it 14 firms and six individuals? Obviously, we, we, you know, we haven't reported who those, those firms are or who those individuals are. And I guess we can only presume that the FCA is investigating those companies, perhaps in, in conjunction or cooperation with other, other regulators in continental Europe. So it all adds up to, as we've written already, a lot of pretty spooked former traders, former officials at banks and hedge funds who are perhaps waiting for that phone call or that letter or that tap on the shoulder, you know. So you've talked a lot about the traders and the banks involved. What about the brokers? Is there any development in relation to them? Sure. So, I mean, this is a really interesting one. In the first sort of landmark court case, when the former Comex trader, Martin Shields, when he sort of went before the judge and laid out how the industry worked, and he basically said that in every Comex trade, you've got a buyer, you've got a seller, but then you also have to have someone in the middle which is the broker, the interdealer broker, as they're known in, in, in the city. And this will traditionally be, you know, like a, a firm that kind of sits between two banks that are trading or between a bank and a hedge fund or a bank and an asset manager. Some of the best known of these brokers would be, you know, historically ICAP, BGC, tradition, companies like that. Now, according to Shields, he names a number of, of interdealer brokers as, that were quite active in, in brokering COMEX trades. He described them as the glue that held the system together because of their kind of unique role. So what emerged last week, I think, um, one of the biggest interdealer brokers in the world is TPICAP. TPICAP came about a couple of years ago when Tullet Prebon once one of the biggest brokers bought out the voice broking operations of ICAP. In a London lawsuit, TPICAP, which has since taken over the old voice broking operations of ICAP, in a lawsuit that emerged last week, TPICAP are now claiming that they were never told when they were taking over these operations that there was all of this kind of regulatory investigation in the background that they, that they now have to deal with. Now, again, that court case will take its course. And I think the, the party that they're suing, uh, have, uh, I think they're trying to have the case dismissed. And so we'll have to see where that one goes, you know. But the claim is that they were never informed of all of these COMEX-related investigations. 
Um, and in the lawsuit, which we reported on last week, it kind of, again, lifted the lid on what ICAP's alleged role in COMEX was and, you know, named one or two of the people who had been allegedly involved in kind of authorizing ICAP's involvement in all of this. I mean, very interesting stuff. Um, and it, that one is likely to run and run. I think the way that the lawsuit characterized ICAP's alleged involvement in COMEX was something like the, the spider in the COMEX web. So according to the lawsuit, ICAP is also facing a number of German investigations into the behavior of two of its former brokers, one of its former directors. And again, the, the, the lawsuit names a number of very senior former people at, at ICAP. So it just kind of shows that COMEX kind of draws in every last corner of the city. It brings in your, your European banks. It brings in your American banks. It brings in your hedge funds. It brings in your lawyers. It brings in your accountants. It brings in your auditors. And it brings in your interdealer brokers too. It spreads across the whole city, you know. Well, thank you very much, Donal, for taking us through the COMEX scandal. As ever, a big thank you goes to our miracle working producer, Mary Mitchell. Josh McDonald, who does all the work pulling each episode together. Our music is from Musical Genius, Andrew Waterson. And of course, a big thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. A full transcript of this episode, together with our references, can be found on our website at www.rpc.co.uk forward slash taxing matters. And you can find Donal on Twitter at at DonalGriffin1 and his articles on Bloomberg. If you like Taxing Matters, why not try RPC's other podcast offering, Insurance Covered, which looks at the inner workings of the insurance industry, hosted by the brilliant Peter Mansfield, and available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or our website. If you have any questions for me or for Donal, or any topics you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please do email us on taxingmatters at rpc.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. If you liked this episode, please do take a moment to rate, review and subscribe and remember to tell a colleague about us. Taxing Matters will be taking a short break for the festive period. So from all of us here on the Taxing Matters team, we hope you have a safe, happy and relaxing holiday period. Thank you all for listening and talk to you again in the new year.